Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fifth weekly episode of HR Works COVID-19 Update. We will be publishing these shorter episodes every week with the goal of covering employment law issues surrounding COVID-19. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to join us. I am the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. Uh, employers beware of the, the situation we find ourselves in provides a potential for unique leverage and incentives for collective action. Many low-paid workers have been labeled essential and are obligated to work or feel obligated to work in hazardous conditions for the same low pay, or even in some cases with pay cuts. Other workers and non-essential businesses have watched their companies cut pay, um, put employees on furlough, or do layoffs in great numbers. Uh, It means they might be worried for their jobs. Uh, Perhaps they're thinking of using collective action to protect themselves. Uh, we are pleased to have back with us today employment attorney Jake Monty, managing partner and founder of Monty and Ramirez LLP, with us today to discuss this important topic. For over two decades, Jake Monty has successfully practiced at the intersection of immigration, labor, and employment laws, a nationally recognized authority on issues facing employers with large Hispanic workforces. Jake has written not one but three books on the topic and speaks regularly in English and Spanish on navigating labor and employment matters in industries with heightened immigration scrutiny. His clients include professional baseball teams, grocery store chains, single establishment and chain restaurants, and leading companies in the construction and facility maintenance fields. Jake has been interviewed by major media outlets such as Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC regarding national immigration concerns. Jake founded Monty and Ramirez LLP to offer an integrated approach to dealing with Hispanic workers. He and his bilingual partners address all the critical aspects of employer advocacy. Jake, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here, Jim. So how has the pandemic changed the bargaining power between employers and employees? Well, for essential industries, you're seeing it firsthand. The employees are are needed now more than ever. They are required for the company to keep functioning and they are putting themselves at risk and putting themselves putting their families at risk by working so automatically you have a limited number of employees actually in the workforce and they're actually doing something that benefits all in the society so they have automatically more bargaining power than they did before, simply because there's a limited number of employees actually working and they're actually doing something that is regarded by all as needed right now. Whereas employers, uh, they you know, don't have the, that, that same bargaining power right now. Uh, they can't just call a staffing company and automatically add uh, people. There are qualified people who are staying home right now because they're worried about their health or they're worried about infecting their family. So anytime you have uh, fewer workers, you're going to have a situation where the employers have less bargaining power than the employees. The other issue that I'm starting to see from my clients is arguments maybe subtle right now where the employees are saying, well, am I really essential or am I just expendable? Mm -hmm. We're seeing this 
in the fast food industry and in some of the grocery uh, distribution centers where employees are are pushing back and and asking you know is 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 this fair uh you know is this wage fair when i'm having to risk my life for it is it fair that i earn this wage when the company might be experiencing record sales especially in the grocery industry so you're you're having that dynamic and we're hearing from hr people who are hearing these comments we're we're hearing it from people that see it on on facebook or on glassdoor and there's chatter now it hasn't really turned into large scale strikes or you know outright demands for more money but there is tension and i will say it was employees had power before the pandemic because the unemployment rate was low but the pandemic has certainly increased their bargaining power even more let's discuss essential workers uh, i wanted to specifically talk about meat processing employees uh i'm sure we've all heard about upcoming meat shortages and that has a lot of people concerned yes yeah we we are you know everyone who 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 eats meat uh, is is depending on these workers, and I've spent a lot of time representing employers in this industry. It's hard work. In many cases, it's almost impossible to do uh, exercising strict social distancing because you're working on an assembly line, and you know I've I've never been in a meat plant where you've had workers separated uh, more mm. than six feet apart you're usually separated more than two feet apart and retrofitting plants is going to take time we're already seeing that some of them are, are installing plexiglass barriers but it's not something that can be done overnight and it's not something that uh will not have an impact on the company also because anytime you you do anything to the worker, you you could slow the the assembly line down, and ultimately, that's what you know the company is going to be worried about uh, as well. So, this is a a problem that will be with us for a while. Uh, testing has gone well in some plants. Uh, you know, we I know some uh, food processors processors that have tested everyone and they've had you know less than 10 percent of the workforce turn out positive but other testing experiments have gone terribly bad where you, know, you could have a third or or more of the workforce come out positive and at that point that threatens the very viability of operating the plant it's not exactly the same but i remember when the tariffs uh the trade war uh, so-called trade war happened with China. You know, there were all these, there was all this information came out, became made public about how specifically pork ranchers uh, operate their businesses. And, you know, what I remember from that was that suddenly we were not selling pork to China. And if any of you have been paying attention, the last we've seen the value as consumers 
with super low pork prices for over a year. Um, but one of the things we learned from that was pigs grow up quickly, too quickly to uh, weather something like this. You know, it's not just the people in the meat meat plant, the the meat packing plant that are being influenced. It's going to be this whole chain of of things, um, and you could see you could see it really taking like a long time uh, for things to ever get back to normal. And the people that are raising those animals often are strained and stressed, as uh, we've also learned having to make decisions about what the market's going to be like in two years from now, you know, today, having to buy that equipment today. And it's it's just crazy to think of how much of an impact this is going to have. You can see why some people are pushing really hard to get those employees back, people that have an understanding of these kinds of things, to get those employees back into the uh, the factories for that reason. Absolutely. It's not just the meat processing workers that are impacted. It, 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 it'll have, it's already having a ripple effect to the farmers, to the other members of the, of the supply chain. So it, it is a big issue. And, you know, in the 1900s, the, the plight of the meat packing plant was, was chronicled in, you know, the book, the jungle, uh, things have gotten a lot better. Uh, Safety standards have improved, but it's interesting that we're still talking about the meat processing worker and and how important they are in in society, even in 2020. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to mention that I have heard from my clients is the whole issue of donning and doffing protective gear. You know, so many lawsuits are filed every year about is that time compensable mm-hmm. and now we're having to grapple with is the time to take your temperature and to sign in on your symptom log. Is that compensable too? Uh, And we've been advising our clients that yes, that should be paid for by the employer, but you know, you're back, you know, to the, the, the age old question, were you waiting to be engaged or engaged to be waiting? And, you know, little things like that, you might say, well, what, it only takes a minute to take the temperature and sign the log. Well, a minute times 300 employees can add up to a lot of overtime. Uh, So these are little things you have to consider also. And something as small as make, not letting the employee check in before you have them take the temperature and log in um, could be one of those little factors that sets employees off. I can't believe the company, you know, for one minute, they're, they're, they're not paying me for that. And it, it could breed bad will. It could lead to some further tension between the employees and uh, the employer. So it's a really good point. It reminds me of uh, there were all those videos of people, uh, healthcare workers, and I'm sure that they wear more equipment than most. But you know these time lapse uh, videos, these people putting on all this protective gear, layers of masks, and you know you just think of what what a bunch of effort that is just to get started. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, 
And I think you're talking about a lot more than a minute in, in the case of healthcare workers. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's another one of those industries where you could see a lot of a lot of um, potential for collective action happening because, I mean, I was just talking to someone yesterday about a, a mental health specialist about the effects that this is having on the those workers specifically. You know, they are many. They feel obligated to help. They've taken an oath to help. They don't have the option to go home um, because if they do, people are dying because they're not there working. You know, many medical staff are well paid, but and and hazard is an important part of their job. But I mean, we're going to be looking at all kinds of mental health issues down the road, at the very least, PTSD, anxiety, all kinds of problems. And then it's just exhausting day in, day out. And they need as many people as they can get for as long as they can get them. So that's one of those industries where you might see people, if they had a minute, maybe to start organizing. Absolutely. And you mentioned hazard pay. We already are hearing certain unions and politicians calling for hazard pay for meat processing workers and healthcare workers. And everyone likes to say that, you know, we thank our healthcare workers, but are you willing to, to pay them more is going to be the, the question that employees and unions are going to ask. And you know, Absolutely. At, at the same time, everyone has limited budgets, especially, you know, hospitals right now that are, are really hurting because they haven't been able to do their non COVID work. So yeah. not a lot of, uh, easy, simple answers, but COVID is going to definitely impact labor and labor law for, I believe years to come. Uh, let's switch gears for a second. Um, what are some of the main reasons that employees end up either resorting to self-help in the form of concerted activity or outside help uh, in the form of a union? Jim, you can look at at least 10 different studies that have looked at and asked employees who sought the help of a union and asked them for the top reasons that they did that. And those results are some are sometimes uh, surprising to people that aren't from this area because they they believe that it's wages or, or benefits or retirement, and they believe that those are the top three reasons employees seek help from a union. And in actuality, it's it's the little things. It's a jerk supervisor who yells, who threatens. Uh, the employees with their job for not file it, for not following the rules. It could be something like pervasive uh, sex discrimination or sex harassment, and the employees feel like they need to band together to stop a a supervisor who's preying on workers. It could also be just a lack of appreciation, and those are those three things. Uh, Supervisors that are rude, uh, lack of appreciation, appreciation or uh, systemic discrimination are the three things that are cited as the top three reasons employees seek help from a union. So 
uh, it, money is important, but it's not the most important thing that drives employees to seek outside help. And that's important because you're, you can educate your supervisors on not to be jerks, on not to engage in discrimination, and on showing appreciation. Those are all things that you, as an HR professional, can, can influence. A lot of it comes down to training. I mean, I've had jerk, I've had jerk employers before, you know, and it wasn't really until I had a kid that I realized that getting angry is the instinct. It's the, it takes something a little bit more. It takes having a plan. It takes having practiced something a little bit and not necessarily going with your immediate instinct um, to make a smart decision. And that's something that HR tries to get across to their leaders and their managers uh, in so many different ways in so many different different uh, areas. Because you don't, if you don't have the tools, you're not going to know what to do when it happens. And if it, if what you do, like yelling at somebody, seems to work, then why wouldn't you do that again? Yeah, absolutely. And I think HR sometimes gets put in a, in a, in a bad situation because management will say, well, you know, why are you always, you know, challenging my managers and you, you're supposed to be looking out for us. And I always tell my clients, if your HR manager or director is not challenging you on how to treat employees better sometimes, then they're not doing their job. 50%, at least 50% of the time, they should be challenging you you as the employer saying, Hey, you know, don't terminate him or give him a raise. Uh, if, if they're just rubber stamping every management decision you want to do, then they're not being an HR professional. They're not helping you. And if you don't have someone in that role, the employee is going to choose an outside union or, uh, you know, organic self-help to try to get what they need. So, uh, this is an area where a good HR department can save the employer money because union organizing drives are not cheap. Mm. Dealing with uh, wildcat strikes or work stoppages is disruptive and not cheap either. Yeah, and it's you know something we talk about probably not enough is that even if you've done everything right, but there's a specter of something bad happening to the point where someone gets led to, you know, gets uh, lawyers involved, you could still win and lose a bunch of money in time. Absolutely. So you really want to avoid any situation where you're even getting to the point where someone thinks about calling, calling a lawyer. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny, but uh, it's the little things that drive employees to outsiders, whether that outsider is a lawyer or a, a union or a, an EEOC uh, um, employee. If, if their needs are being met in the workplace, they're not going to go to outsiders. Well, Jake, I really appreciate you uh, taking time once more to, to talk to us about these things. It's always a pleasure. Great talking with you, Jim. Listeners, please check back next week for the next episode of HR Works COVID-19 Update. Thanks for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.